I want you to turn to the book of Haggai. That's the third from the end. You got Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. If you go back to the little book of Haggai, I'd like to take our message this morning from that. And we will look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, that's the title of the message this morning. Consider your ways. The word consider means to give thought to. It doesn't need any definition, but it's simply that. That's what we know when we talk about consider something. It's to give thought to. Now, the reason God asked that question was because of the circumstances, the situation that was existing then with God's people. Let me give you just a moment's background Haggai was one of three prophets who prophesied after the return from Babylon. The other prophets, the other minor prophets, prophesied that there was going to be countries come in and take them out and carry them into captivity. And these three that returned, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three here, they prophesied during the time of Ezra, during the rebuilding of the temple. And if you're familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah, they were the ones that came back after 70 years back to the land of Israel and to rebuild the temple and the wall because everything was, as we would say, in weeds and grown up and ruined and it was just a yucky place, garbage heaps. God had a time in history where he was going to fix all of that and and he caused his things to happen so that would happen. Now, these people, Haggai, who came back in this group that returned, they're back in Israel or Jerusalem. And as one commentator says, this takes place about 14 years after they were back. And they had already done some work on the temple, but because there was so much opposition, it's like from the Samaritans. Samaritans were people that were brought into the land by Babylon. Whenever they took all those Israelites out, they left a few of them in there, a few of the Jewish people there, but they sent captives from all these other countries. They had different customs, different gods. They had no interest in the promised land. They were just there because they were made to go there. So they were inhabiting the land. The central point in that was Samaria, about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. And so these were indifferent people to God. They had no interest in the way of God. They had mingled with some of the Jewish people. And Ezra, you know, he's the one that said, you got to get rid of your wives and your children because you've mingled. You know, this is not good. And it was pretty strong about how God felt about separation and so forth. But anyway, these people that were there were in opposition to building the temple. They didn't want the Jews to, and they still don't today. They don't want them to have it as God would have them have it. And so they were opposing the building of the temple, even to the place that Ezra had them building with a brick in one hand and a sword in the other hand, and they were going to get it built. There are people of God who are going to finish the course that God put them on. I don't care what comes against them. They just will not give up. That's the kind of people that God has. Well, anyway, in our story, these folks that come back, The temple hasn't been finished. It's sort of gotten started, but there's not much there. And the men who came back with that intention of building it were just, they had found other interests. They were building their own homes. They were interested in securing themselves. I mean, who wouldn't, as we would say today? Well, well, of course. And they had their family's interests, and they had getting them in a home and and finding a place to plant and grow and, and make a living. Like they said in verse 2, the people say the time has not come. The time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. They weren't willing to set aside their own personal needs and focus on the greater need, which was, well, where God said he would come down and meet with his people. See, a fact in Jewish history is where there is no temple, there is no spiritual activity. The temple was where the ark was. The temple was where the offerings were made. The temple was always the focal point of the life of the Jewish people. Everything revolved around the temple. Because that's where God, at least once a year on the Day of Atonement, that's where God met his people. 
This symbolizes who we are. It's the God kind of worship. Now, if we don't have that, then what do we as people look to? Where do we go to solve problems to get things right with the Lord? If you don't have the temple, as they didn't, they just sort of began to drift away, and as people do, and do your own thing. Your life becomes ingrained. You become self-serving. And that's not meant to be an ugly, vile thing. It's just people do that. God is an option. Even today, that is true. God is an option. We know that we should, but we don't always do it. We don't know. But that's what happens. But when God is the focal point of anybody's life, when Jesus is who he is supposed to be, when he is the one whose kingdom first you seek, and not only his kingdom or his reign over your life, but his righteousness. Remember Matthew 6? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's how we're now supposed to begin living. His ways are the right ways. Everything that's not right is wrong. Now, we live in a time in which that's not acceptable, but it's true. If it's not right, it's wrong. It may seem right. It may be declared right by a religious system. Oh, this is a good thing. But if it's not according to the Lord, it's wrong. And therefore, we see a pretty narrow way that God has given to us. And people naturally begin to sort of recoil from things that are so demanding or so binding. And we like to free our conscience from having that guilt of not doing things. If we don't listen to much, we don't have much to think about. But let me tell you something. You read this all through the Bible. God is never going to leave his people alone. He's never going to let you that he chose do it your way. You may be doing it your way now. He may say to us this morning, consider your ways. You're struggling. Things are not well. It could be a whole lot better than it is. You've heard how it's been taught, but there's not much evidence of this in your life. It doesn't seem like your life is a pattern of scriptural response. So maybe God says, maybe he's saying that to us this morning. Maybe saying that to my preachers over here. Consider your ways. Think about it. Look at yourself. Look at the choices you're making. Look at how you're living. Look at how you respond to things in your life that don't go your way and how you tend to throw a little, a good southern term here, a good hissy fit. I don't know either, but that's what they say. And so you tend to, you know, uh, and we go to church, and, and a lot of people, well, I don't, I don't, you know. And God says, wait a minute. Now consider your ways. What's he talking about? What is he referencing when he says, consider your ways? Well, look at verse 6. Verse 6 and 7. You have sown much and you bring in little. That message is not working. You eat and you don't have enough. That message is not working. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. That message isn't working. You clothe you, but there's nobody warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes in it. There's always more month left at the end of the check. That's not what we've been taught. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, that's what God said. Or did God say stuff like that? Well, let me go to verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, again, after verse 5, consider your ways. Now think of it. First, he says, consider your ways. They might respond by saying, like what? He said, well, look, you don't have enough to eat. You don't have enough to drink. You don't even have enough clothes to get warm. And, and what you've got, you put it in a pocket with holes in it. In other words, it just goes somewhere else. You're not doing well at all. You're not doing well. And God never has tried to put a guilt trip on his people, except guilt can be a good thing because guilt will lead to repentance. Or in verse 9, you look for much, and lo, it came to little. How many people have come to that? And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. 
says the Lord of hosts. I mean, things aren't going well for you. And you know why? You know what he said in verse 9? You know why? Because of my house. Now, this is not a message to build a church building. Because a church building today in the New Testament is not like a temple was in the Old Testament. A church building today is a convenience for us. It was a need then. It was a necessity. So when I talk about building my house, I'm not talking about a building program, give until it hurts, dig deep and all that. I'm just talking about at the time, this was the reason I brought you back to Israel, to the Jewish land. This is why after 70 years, I said, I'm even going to prophesy that the ruler is going to release you and let you come back and give you money to come back and build a temple. That's your whole purpose. I didn't send you back to see how well you could do, how fancy you could live. I sent you back to repair the house and restore and rebuild the house of God. It's the kingdom of God that's got to be first anyway. And when it's not, why should anything work well for us? Including our lives. I'm asking you the question today because I want it to be personal. Because I made it personal for myself. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Look around. How much of your life is an expression of the blessing of God's covenant? Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 5. Would you just look back? For that moment of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5. And look at Deuteronomy 4 and verse 40. Thou shalt therefore keep his statutes and his commandments which I command thee this day. Let's just do what he said. Why? That Keep his statutes and his commandments that I command you this day, that or so that it may be well with you. Does it say that? That it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days upon the earth, which the Lord gives you forever. Are we supposed to do well? In other words, has the almighty God made a provision for us to do well? What's the provision? His word and our approach to it and our response to it, to listen and to hearken, to be willing to do what he says, to make whatever adjustments you have to make for a wicked man to forsake his ways and replace everything with his right ways. He said, this is why and this is how things change over to what glorifies God. I don't think God is glorified and broken down pitiful, sorrowful-looking people. I'm not saying anybody is. I'm just saying I don't think that's what God is doing. I think he can love people that are broken. Now, they may not know any better. They may have grown up in darkness. They may have the best hearts in the world, but nobody ever taught them that it could be different. They didn't know they could rise above. They didn't know that. They're good people. I had some, I'm sure, some good people in my family tree. I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm just saying that without light, you're going to keep walking in some form of darkness while you're a good person with a good heart. But when God opens our eyes, when we begin to read this, and he says that it may be well with you and with your children, that's the way it should be. It should be well with us and our children. And when it's not, it's because of a flaw Somewhere in how we relate to God. Turn to chapter 5 and verse 29. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always. That, what does it say again? That it might be well with them and with their children for a while. No, forever. Verse 33, you shall walk in all the ways. We sing this. You shall walk in all the ways that the Lord your God hath commanded you, that you may live. And that it may be well with you. 
Remember the song we sang in Jeremiah? You may not know that Jeremiah's where it is, but the song we sang in Jeremiah 7, 23, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And here we go. Walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that. Is God saying, if you will walk in the ways that I've commanded you, it will be well with you? And yet, historically, God's people can hear that, fold their arms, ponder, walk away from it, and forget it. I don't understand that. Because when things are not going well, and you say, there's a problem in your connection with God. Oh, you're condemning. I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm trying to make a situation that needs some light be able to be seen. He didn't say, walk in my way and it might not be well with you. He said, walk in my way and it will be well with you. You want it to be well with you? How about in all your homes? How about all the things that you do, everything you put your hand to? How about when you get up in the morning, you start on your journey through the day? And you're working somewhere or you're cleaning a house or fixing or cooking or doing things. Whatever you do, did you know that God said he wants it to be well with you? That was a covenant promise. You know, a covenant and a, a solemn agreement from one party to another. The other party, us, we may break the covenant by ignoring it and then forgetting it or not wanting to do it. But God remains faithful. He will stay with him. That's why today Israel is back in their land. The Jewish people are not in their land today because they're so right. They don't have a temple. They don't even have a priesthood. They can make no sacrifices for their sins. They have rejected Jesus. So what about that is holy or any way deserving of God's great favor? Nothing. Well, then why are they receiving such favor when they're so sinful or out of favor or out of touch? Because God made a covenant of what he was going to do with those people, and he remains faithful, and he's doing it. Not because they're righteous, but because he said he would. Now, he'll finish something else later on. When he chose you and he started a good work in you, I promise you this. If he chose you, he'll finish what he started. You may not think so. But he's going to needle us and follow us and probe us and pick on us and deal with us all the time. Because there is a way that he wants us to live. And it's a way that he approves of. And if it's not the way he approves of, then he has to deal with it. He has to judge it. And he doesn't want to judge you. He wants to say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, which he will. And it might be a difficult ride, but he's going to do that. Now, back to where we were in the book of Haggai. He said, the problem with you people is this. You consider your ways. You've come back from captivity. You have returned from the land of bondage, from another life. You've come to the Lord. And you're not serving him, you're serving yourself. That's what he would say. How many of you believe the demands of God are such that the only right relationship, the only relationship that is right between a man, a woman, and God is one in which God is the focus of the life. The purpose for the life. Let me see. In Luke 14, 26, all these people, great crowd. Good time to start a big church. They came to him. He turned and said to them, if any of you come after me and you're unwilling to put me first and my ways first, or if you put anybody or anything before me, you cannot be my disciple, including your own life, which we treasure so much. If you can't put God before your most desired interest in this world, maybe your wife, your family, if you cannot put him before that, you can't be a disciple. 
a follower because at some point you'll quit following and you'll follow something else. So if you want to be his follower, his pupil, he has to have your whole heart. And he also said, whoever of you that will not forsake all that he has. Didn't say you have to give it away. If God blesses you, he didn't say, well, now I've got it, but I sure ain't going to touch it because I don't want to lose myself. No. It's where your heart is. Where your heart is is where your treasure is, right? If in your heart, everything you have, you will not dedicate it whenever, however, to God when he wants it, as well as enjoy it yourself. If he is not in charge of it, you can't be his disciple. How many of you believe that would knock a church of 1,000 down to about 200? You know why? Because it's the truth. There are those who desire truth in the inward parts, who are willing to forsake the world, to give up the world, its rights to you, its ways that please it. They're willing to give that up, to do whatever is necessary to turn to God with a whole heart. There are people like that. And the message of God doesn't disturb them. They don't balk at it. They don't go, oh, I don't know about that. that. They don't do that. It's just like a soldier in the army. Now, I've never been in a situation like this. I would never want to be in one. But he's in a battle. And he's outnumbered. And he's surrounded. And he knows that he can't turn back. So he fully commits himself to doing whatever he can to the best of his ability as long as he can to win his battle or do what he can. He's committed. He doesn't even think, well, I'd like to go back. He can't go back. You're going to die and not finish some of the things you could have done. What about an airplane pilot? In World War II, flying on a mission overladen with bombs, much too heavy. They got them in the air, but there was a little too much weight on the plane, but we got to do all the damage that we can. So there were bold and brave souls that pulled the yoke back, got it off the ground, got in the air, flying over the channel, headed into Germany or France. And I'm going to make this up because I don't think this is right, but there was a little line on the fuel gauge. Now, if you're not there, by the time it gets to here, you need to go back because you can't make it. Because if you go past this, you can't come back. We call that the point of no return. And as a story, as I read this years ago, there were those pilots who hadn't got their bombs dropped yet. They hadn't finished their mission yet. But it was so unnecessary for them to do what they were called to do, that they agreed amongst themselves, are we going to go through this? Yes. Because once they got point of no return, that point, chances are they were dead already. Now you talk about full, wholehearted commitment to a cause. They had it, and they did it, and they didn't get back. It's kind of like the, a commitment and a dedication a man has to something that's bigger than life, or that's what life is all about. And he is determined to live that life. Now, in social America, this is not a very comfortable thing to say. It's not very obvious amongst us. In other countries where they die daily, some of the Middle Eastern countries where if you're a Christian, you could die at any moment. Your little church meeting, if they find out where it is, or in China, you could be blown up or arrested and thrown in prison and never heard from again just for reading your Bible just for reading it or having a copy of it. You're in jail for a long time. I'm talking about a nasty jail. No freedoms, no rights. You're just going to be put in a place you'll never be seen again. Just for being willing to do that. See, we can't relate to that much. So these people are committed. Whatever the Lord wants, they're willing to love whoever they're willing to go wherever. They're willing to do whatever. They're just a commitment. And because of that, they'll be blessed. Now, back to our story. Look at you folks, he said. Look at you. You've been here for 14 years. My house is lying in ruins. 
We don't meet together anymore. There's no spiritual worship. There's no sacrifices, no offerings. The priests are who knows where. And you're letting that go, and you're saying, well, you know, it's just not time. We don't have a lot of money. There's not much here to do, and so we're not really doing well. But it's just, this is not the right time for us to build the Lord's house. That's why he said to them, well, you're living in these pretty homes you're living in. You like all the stuff that you have. But you say the Lord's house is not important in your life? In a lesser sense, that's true with many people in this country. Sunday worship or belonging and being a part of something and praying for that something and in that something and a commitment to the word of God, that's not a big deal. Church is an option today. It's like an auto club. We ought to go. We ought to do better. But if you don't, well, I mean, you know, who should tell me what I should do? I mean, we hired the preacher. We're not going to let him tell us what to do. I mean, he's paid by us. So he knows what his limits are. He can't say much if he wants to keep his job. Every man begins to do that which is right in their own eyes, and the Lord comes to us in this hour before judgment. And he says, consider, hey, consider your ways. Look at how life's going for you. Listen that you clamor or you complain or you not have any interest or you bad mouth and it just, ugh. I had a phone conversation the other day with a person in um, another place on this planet. <laughs> Nobody would know where that is. This could have been down in southern Argentina or maybe in the Antarctic by a staff phone. Who knows? But just so much complaining. Just complaining. Nothing. I mean, mention any subject. And, you know, after a while you're thinking, I, you're killing me, lady. Or man, or child, or... <laughs> anyway. You know what? They don't go to church anywhere. There's nothing here. And that's the typical picture. When there's nothing there, this is what happens. And when this begins to happen, the rest of your life is sort of in a, in a ruin. And graciously and kindly and most lovingly, God comes to us when we don't deserve the question to be asked. And he says, consider your ways. You don't have to talk like that. You don't have to have that mindset. You don't have to feel like that all the time. But look at how you're living. Look at what your priorities are. Where does God fit in? Well, you know, we ought to go to church. You're not even trying to go to church. You're just satisfying the fact that you want that by saying it. Uh, well, we ought to, you're not even trying. If God spoke audibly down in your house and said, the next Sunday morning you're not in church, you will die that day. I promise you, somebody's got company next Sunday. They'll find somewhere because God will do that to get us where he wants us to be so he doesn't have to judge us. So he says, consider your ways. Listen to this verse you're familiar with. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking to his people. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. The psalmist said, I begin to think on my ways like hopefully we will and, and we do. I begin to think on my ways and, and I turned my feet into thy testimonies. When I begin to see where I was going, God wasn't going to bless it. The way I'm living, the attitude, the atmosphere I'm in, the philosophy I have about life, my opinions, God is not going to bless that because that is not what he has shown me in his word. He said his word is life. Anything else is death. Oh, there is a way that seems right. What did he say it was? It's a way of death. We use that all the time. I'm sure a way that seems right will have a lot of Jesus in it. Have a lot of singing songs and robust, zealous singing in it. People giving, people doing this or that. 
That's religion. Religion is adherence to a set of beliefs, whether it's some cult, some oriental religion, or Christianity. It's religion. People find a way they like to do things, and that's the way they do it. They believe God will bless that, though he's not, but they learn to live with not being blessed. And when you tell them they can be blessed, they answer not a word. We're so used to not doing well. We're so used to things being uncertain. We're so used to the struggles and the circumstances of life. Everybody we talk to is going through it. The news is all about it. Your friends talk about it. And the idea that you're saying that it can really be well with us. That's what the word prosper means. To be well. To do well. To have a good mental game, maybe. When you're doing well in your mind, you're doing well. I'd rather you have a good mental game than a good dollar game. Because money can't make you happy. But the word of God can. And a man looks a whole lot better when he's happy. He lives a whole lot better when he has peace in his heart. Because a lot of people that are rich and famous are miserable people. And that is not what God is doing. He may meet you there. He may deal with you there. But what he will do will be more in harmony with what he's teaching us he wants to do. Obey my word, he said, and I shall be your God. Now you notice back in, in our verse, in order to get people where he wants them, God uses events. Verse 11, God says, and I called for the drought. We could call it famine, dryness, no juice. God says, and I called for a drought. Does that mean that God is in charge of nature? Can God command the stars to sing? Can he command the mountains to break forth? Could he cause stones to cry out and say, Hosanna? Jesus said he could. The all of creation responds to God as though it's personal, as though it really has life of some sort. For everything out there, everything that is responds to God's will and God's word. When he speaks, even when there was nothing, even when there was just, there's no words to describe this, but there was nothing. But God. And in the mind of God, there was what he wanted. You couldn't see it. It was here. To say that he had a mind, you know, the anthropomorphic thing that Jeff was talking about. I mean, we ascribe those kind of features to God so that we can try to relate to what he's saying. And so God said, earth, creation, no. All the stars in the sky. So God said, heaven. Just like that. Creation Museum would like to understand even more of that, but they're doing pretty good with it. Now, that science guy, he's, he doesn't know where he's at. Y'all don't even know who the science guy is. Because, you see, nothing was made like that. It all began with a, see, there was nothing, and then there was something that started. Right. Some kind of gas, some kind of a, Reaction, a protein met another, something's got bigger words, more words to it, more letters to it. And that kind of went, next thing you know, it's, now why it stopped, I don't know. But once that was created and God wanted an earth, there was no earth. How could you frame an earth when there never was one? God had a word. God saw earth on the inside of him, so he framed what he saw with the word. He spoke the word, and the world became. And then everything else, except for you. Of course, he made you with his hands, in his own image, in his own likeness. The point of it is that God uses things, things that he is in charge of, like famines and droughts, to get people's attention, God can do that. Elijah went to Mount Carmel up there on the coast. 
All the people came. You know why? You know why everybody came? Because it's three and a half years of terrible drought. As Elijah said, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. As Jeff was saying, when Ahab finally caught up with Elijah, said, are you he that troubleth Israel? And he said, no, you have forsaken the Lord's way. That's the problem. And it always is, folks. It always is. You've forsaken the Lord's way to do your own way. And in spite of how good you are and kind or educated you are, that doesn't qualify you for good results. And so it was a drought. It was a famine. Pour the water on it. You know the story. But it was by a drought. A planned drought brought all these people together in a display of the power of God so that God could win the hearts of his people back to him. He cared about the people. He didn't forsake them. It looked like it. Only what good it is to serve God. We don't even have enough to drink. This place is so dry. And then one day, he brought them all back showed who God really was and what the problem was with these vile priests and this false religion. And the place started to rain. How in the world did Abraham and the, the people we call the nation of Israel, how in the world did they get in Egypt? Why did Abraham, Abram, why did he go down into Egypt? Because of a drought. When Joseph was sold, where did he go? To Egypt. Why was Joseph in Egypt? He was gone for a long time. Who? Joseph. The son you're still crying about? Jacob? Yeah. Where is he? I don't know. He died, I guess. No, he's in Egypt. He's in prison in Egypt. Seemed like everything's going bad for you. It's not going well for you. But there's a plan. There's a plan here. You're not in jail because God is against you. In fact, he made you do well in jail. Even in prison, he caused you to do well, Joseph. And then there was a dream. And then somebody who would, had been restored back to the Pharaoh's palace said, I know who can tell you what the dream is. His name is Joseph. He's a Hebrew. Bring him in here. And he told him what it was, and he became the second honcho in the whole kingdom. A drought and a famine. And he saw it, and he told him what happened. Then didn't you know what the drought caused? It caused all of God's people, the 12 tribes, to come to Egypt. And that was where 400 plus years later that Egypt gave birth to Israel. Get out of here. And you know the rest of the story. But he put them over there so he could bring them out of there. He put them in Egypt so they wouldn't die. And he... Made them prosper there. They built some nice pyramids. You ought to see them. And he brought them out. But he used a famine. He used difficulty in your life, your financial problems. The problem you may be having with one of your youngsters. There may be a divine design in this somewhere. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it could be. There's many of them in the Bible how God used people like that. What was the purpose of Goliath? The big ugly fella. I'm talking about a guy 10 to 11 feet tall. Brought fear in everybody. Everybody was convinced. We can't handle that. Oh, yeah, God could, but who are we? What was the purpose of Goliath? To show us who David was. Who? David. Who's David? You know, Jesse's boy. Who? The one that keeps the sheep. Oh, the little one. Yeah. What's he got to do with Goliath? He's going to kill him. <laughs> right. All right. You watch him wind that rock up and let one go. Hit that giant right between the eyes and went up there and cut his head off. I'm not into that. <laughs> he cut his head off. God uses situations in your life, famines, financial distresses, just to get your attention so he can birth his purpose, a way that advances his kingdom, that makes you more favorable to him. This is what you were called to be. There's nobody in this room 
that God saved to stay and do your own thing. Nobody, everybody in here has a design of some sort in God's kingdom. You'll never find it unless you search it. But everybody here has a purpose, has a design. There is a reason for all of us to be here. There's a place that we're all supposed to go or be or do something. And along the way of life are so many things that seem to want to keep us down or hold us back and we want to give into it. Sometimes, folk, it is there for you to conquer it. Even Paul said, it will never be bigger than you are. No testing that you'll go through is ever designed to overthrow you. But it's there to put you to the test. Take the things that you've been taught and apply it to the problem. Take your faith against this oncoming enemy and put your faith against the enemy. And even though it doesn't look like much, watch God make something big out of it. And he can make a mountain out of a molehill. He can take the least little whoever in this room is whoever. And he can make you in any situation or circumstances be like David with Goliath. He can make you the champion. You know why? To enrich your way of looking at him. To make you realize that this is all of God. That he can do things way above my head. That I don't have to languish in this life. I don't have to fret. I don't have to cry and Ball and I don't have to be down in the dumps and, and be so negative. I don't even have to do that anymore. God is showing me who he is in the circumstances in my life. And when life isn't going well and you're not fighting, God says, well, consider your ways. What are you doing that would cause God to want to get involved? Are you doing things his way? Are you trusting him? Are you putting him first? What's your priorities in your life? What is your priorities in your life? See, in life, there's only two ways. His way or no way. It's either life or death. It's either good or bad. It's either right or wrong. There's no middle ground. Now, to get a middle ground, you've got to get a liberal in there. Somebody who holds no truth to be absolute. That everything is changeable. What may have been true back in your days, Brother Hamilton, uh, is not necessarily true today. People were different then than they are now. No joke. But I'll tell you one thing that has not changed in any generation, is human nature. Every man wants to do well. Nobody wants to languish. The only way you can do well is God's way. There is no other way to, for that to happen. What a narrow way, either or. It's either righteous or it's unrighteous. If it's not according to righteousness, it's unrighteous. Now, how narrow is that? How popular is that? It's either good or bad. It's either right or wrong. You either in or out. You're either okay or you're not okay. You're either good or you're bad. Is it possible that good people could be bad? I don't mean bad in the sense of hurting other people and being vile and yeah, but just bad in the sense of rejecting the word of God. Do you suppose a loving grandmother could reject the word of the Lord? Could she? Could she teach others you don't have to do that or that's not right or that's not for today? Of course she could. Is that evil? It doesn't mean she's an evil by nature person, but her way and her philosophy breeds evil. Because that's either or. And people don't like it to be that kind of narrow. Listen to what Moses said. Let me just read you something from Deuteronomy. He said, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death. Nothing in the middle, either or life or death, blessing or cursing. Therefore, he said, choose life 
the choice is yours. Nobody can make you choose life. You may choose life because your mom and dad chose life because you think that's the proper thing to do. But if you don't really believe that, later on in your life, you'll let go of it. Because you do have a will and you are a, a particular, peculiar, unique person. You'll have to make your own decisions. But you've got to choose. You've got to make the right choice. I mean, he said, look at your ways. Consider your ways. Look at the choices. Your priorities are very evident in your life about who you're serving, about what you're after and who's number one in your life. It's not hard to see that. Your priorities are out of whack. Again, seek first. First. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, which people think is not for today. Seek first. Something we can all do. Nobody is exempt from this. It's as possible with all of us. Seek first the kingdom of God and you can't have one without the other. Seek first the kingdom of God and his right ways. His holiness. Seek that first and all these other things. What? Shall be added to you. How many times have we heard that in our life? And we've kind of rejected it. Folks, life is all about Jesus. Life is all about God. There could be nothing that stands between you and God that makes you right and pleasing with the Lord. We know that. We just can't do that. That is not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So let's say we get a degree of conviction and we want to get things right, at least this morning right now. We'll go to Isaiah 55. We want to get it right. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, or I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide or counsel you with my eye upon you. Wow. I want that. Psalms 32 and verse 8. Now, here's the people that are like what I've been talking about. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, my way. Who doesn't? Come on. And the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ came to show us the way it's supposed to be. You would agree with that. And not only did he fulfill that, by all of his life was this. I have come to do my father's will. He did that. And then he was willing to present himself to God without spot, without flaw. To be the sacrifice in place of man's sins. He would be God's lamb, God's sin offering. And he would take our place like on the Day of Atonement, as our sin offering. Now, he was holy, and he was pure, and no sin in his life, and it couldn't be. But he was willing to take your place, and it said he did that because all of us are serving ourselves. We're all self-serving people, and God could have left us that way and judged a whole bunch of us. But he didn't. He didn't, just like he brought a famine because he wanted to meet with them one day to fix it. And here's Jesus. He comes along. He come to fix the biggest problem in the world, and that's sin. What is sin? Us doing our own thing. Adding God to it, hoping it works, but doing our own thing. He said, we have turned to our own ways. Now, in Isaiah 55 and verse 6, he said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's the first thing you have to do in recovery in coming to or maybe returning is seek to seek the Lord. When does it say we seek him or call upon him? Seek the Lord when? While he may be found. Does that mean that you can't just call upon him whenever you want to? 
All the calling is done in response to God. No man tells God what day he wants to get saved. God is not sitting in some static seat where he just lets things happen to see what you're going to do. Then he responds. No, he already knows. So, we get to make a choice, don't we? What are you going to do with this? Man, I've been convicted about it. I'm stirred on the inside. Well, you should be. Because you see, it's, the stirring is evidence that his presence. This is a day that God's going to deal with your life. Well, I'm going to put it off for a few days. You know, you can because you have a will. God won't keep you from putting it off. You can close your Bible and walk out of here. You can do that. You got a will. But you cannot call upon the Lord anytime you want to because, well, now's a good time to call. You call upon the Lord when God gives you that. I do. Listen, folks, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty means absolute control of all creation. Man does not dictate to God when he wants to respond to God. Man can only respond to God when God draws him. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I brought you to me, and he brought us, as I've already said, for a purpose. He's not trying to see how many people he can get in the big church. There's a design, a divine design. That'd be a good title for sermon preachers. Divine design. If y'all can spell it, divine design be a good title for a sermon. Amen. He has a purpose. So the day comes. You're there, you're listening. I can remember well. Many times when I was in church and the preacher would drone on about things, I'd hear a few things he said, and I thought, well, yeah, that ain't going to work. I could have gone forward, couldn't I? I could have said, you know what? I think I'll go forward so they'll quit singing. So you go up there and you go forward. What are you here for, Brother Tom? Come to get saved? Yeah, I want to get baptized too. All right, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? I doubt you did. I think you're going to get baptized. You're going to go down a center. You're going to come up a center. Just a wet one now. I don't think anything happened to you. But when God deals with the heart, when God walks through an aisle of a church and he begins to touch people's hearts with guilt and conviction and he begins to speak to them about it and that work of God begins to take place, you are aware of it. You know it person beside you said, what is wrong with you? It's God. This is your moment. This is your time. This is the day of your salvation. Just as I am and waiting, not remember that Bonnie, to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. Move over, Bonnie. I'm up here now. Oh, Lamb of God. Why was it that day? You think I could have stayed in my seat? Sure, I could have. But the compelling influence of God, I'll never forget it, never want to forget it. It was just something that was more than special, a particular moment in my life when I came out of captivity and came to God. And I thought, what an ugly creature you got, Lord. What a vile soul you've got kneeling up here squalling like a baby. I don't know if I could even live this life. Who does? Just as I am. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Boy, I was. And I know it because there was a day I was well aware of it. And God dealt with me and I, oh, God saved me. Save me, Lord. And he did. You think when God knocked Paul down on the road to Damascus, you think Paul said, what in the world was that? Uh -uh, it was a divine moment. 
God was bringing him into his kingdom so he could now begin to accomplish his purpose with Paul in the fulfillment of the things he's prophesied, predicted, or decreed. Oh, Jesus, it was so good. A second thing here that's found in Isaiah, he said, if you forsake your way of thinking, verse 7, if you were willing to forsake your way of thinking, and all the deeds that come from thinking, you're thinking and you're doing, you'll be pardoned. Think of it. It's that simple. Let the wicked, first he said seek. Seek the Lord. Call on him when he's there. Let the wicked forsake his way, number two, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts, because that's what's got us in trouble, the way we think. And let him return to the Lord. Come back. Isn't it amazing that God could take people as bad as we are and say, come back, come to me. And you say, not me, you. Man, I messed up all that. Come to me. My church is made of mess ups. Everybody in here is messed up. You're a bunch of rejects anyway. The world doesn't want you. The world's not in here. You are. Who are we? I hear some of these People write about, you know, well, where's the proof of Jesus in history and all that? History, history. They didn't even know who he was in the day he lived, let alone history. They had to bribe Judas to point out which one of them are we supposed to kill. History. Who cared about Jesus and his talks along the way and his dusty roads and all those poor people that were around? Who cared about that? We're interested in Caesar, Rome. God planned it that way. We have to believe all this, don't we? Well, anyway, let me close by saying this back again in Isaiah 55. Let people like you and me seek the Lord while we can find him and while he's near. Let us forsake. Let us be willing to say no more. No more cussing, no more drinking, no more gambling, no more porn, no more whatever I have done all my life as a way of life. No more. I have got to make that decision. If I don't make that decision, it'll keep going. I have got to make that decision. So he said, if you look in verse 7 again, if he will forsake his way and return to the Lord, what will God do? He will have mercy on him. And we'll what? The word pardon means forgive. Our favorite psalm, Psalm 103, verse 2, who forgiveth all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. The word forgiveth is the same as the word pardon. Same word. Think of it. All the sins, all the vile acts and deeds anybody in this room has ever done, has ever thought. All the things that you are responsible for or guilty of that has determined the fact that you are dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no right to God. You've forsaken. You have forfeited your rights. Your sins have separated between you and God. You're done. It's over. Except for mercy. Now, The policeman could pull you over for speeding because you were doing five miles over the speed limit in a 30-mile zone. You're doing 35. Does he have a right to give you a ticket? Is he right? Or were you wrong? No harm. Pay your bill. But what if he has mercy? What if he has mercy? And he says, you know what? You broke speed limit, didn't you? Uh Uh-huh. You're guilty of a fine, aren't you? Yes, sir. No complaints. He said, I'm going to let you off. You know what that was? Mercy. You know what all your sins meant? You're dead. You know what mercy means? You're forgiven. All that stuff and all of it. You mean I have no, my sin, oh, the bliss Of this glorious thought, 
my sin, not in part, but what? The whole was nailed to a cross. And you know what? I bear it no stinking more. I'm free. It's all gone. You know, God says, consider your ways. All of this can be changed. You can be in the middle of my will, fulfilling my purpose, and in the end, no matter how it does. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. One closing thought. There is a famine coming. A bad one. It's a spiritual famine. And Amos, you know what? Find Amos. Get one there where Ezekiel and Daniel are, and then it's Hosea, Joel, Amos. And Amos, of course, is right before your orange juice. What's orange juice? OJ, Obadiah, and Jonah. What's after orange juice? Candy. M and N, Micah, Nahum. And then you get a pair of HZs. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Isn't that easy? Now we know who all the minor prophets were. Praise God, we've been to church. All right, now, Amos chapter 8. Hosea, Joel, and there he is. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. Listen at this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send famine in the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. And they shall find abundance of it. You know what it says? They won't find it. Why? Because this is no longer a divine moment to bring you back. This is judgment. Listen to me. In the last days, there will be those who realize that we're not hearing God's word anymore. We're hearing the word of a man that's misleading us, treating us like juveniles, telling us stories. We don't even know what we're supposed to believe anymore. And we were going over to that little concrete cathedral of tomorrow. Most of them are gone. I wish all of them were. They don't know what happened to the preacher. He was raptured. And we can't even find the word anymore. What about all those tapes? They disappeared. Bonnie said she'd stack them all up and put them out there on the street for everybody when we were gone. Here's you something. It's not much, but it's better than nothing. And there's going to be a famine in the last days of hearing the words of the Lord. People that don't want to hear it now will not hear it tomorrow or in the future. If they turned away from it now, they will not be able to turn back to it. They will be aware of their need, but they will not be able to have the need met. What judgment is that? Verse 12, they will not be able to find it. Let me ask you a question, all of you, so we can go. Do you believe that God has shown you, at least to a degree, his way of life for you to live? Do you believe that God has shown you a portion, a way, maybe a part of his way for you? That he's shown you more? Do you, do you believe that? See, then it's a treasure. Whatever little bit we have, it is a treasure. It's a pearl of great price. Because there comes a day that won't even be there. From the least of us, like me, we won't even be there to preach it to them. And they won't hear it from anybody. And you're hearing it now. I think that's a blessing. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And how you have loved the likes of us. How you have drawn us out of all the Babylons of our life. And you have brought us back with purpose to do your bidding. Father, I pray that you will show us how those moments I spoke of, those divine situations 
where you get us to focus on Jesus and not on ourselves. To learn to know that we can trust you with our needs, but to seek first your kingdom. Bless those this morning that have listened with the most intensity. May this word never die in anybody's heart. Lead us in a way of eternity. Prepare us for the day that's coming. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Holy Lord, most holy Lord, you alone are worthy my praise. to serve the Lord.